All right, let's go. First Corinthians chapter 15. First Corinthians chapter 15. If you don't own a Bible, uh, we will have the text up on the screens behind me in just a little bit. Uh, also, if, if you don't have one that you can call yours, like like your own copy. We also have some physical Bibles scattered around the room, little racks beneath the seats. Uh, we, we spread them out as best we could, uh, but if you are not within arm's reach of one and you want one, just dive across your neighbor. I'm sure they'll understand. Um, it's a, I mean, what better purpose to dive across your neighbor? All right. Um, no, we'll have the text up here. We would love for you to grab one of those. Take those home uh, if you don't have a copy of God's Word that you can call yours. Uh, the reason for that is incredibly simple. We believe that God uses His Word for all kinds of important things, but chief among those really awesome important things is that He uses it to reveal Himself to His people. Uh, there are lots of things that we can point to about the Scriptures, about God's Word, for why He has given it to us, but chief among, at the top of the mountain, is that he uses it to reveal himself to his people. We want you to know God. Uh, that, that is the mission of National Baptist Church. We want you to know God. We want everything in and about and around your life to be shaped by knowing him, filtered through the lens and understood through knowing him. And if the scriptures are what he uses to do that in you, uh, then not having a copy of them that you can dig into yourself puts you at a disadvantage. We, we can fix that this morning. Take that one home. Uh, so regardless of whether or not you've got uh, a lot, of, you, you know, spent a lot of time in church or uh, you would call yourself a Christian, I think everyone here is at least probably on the same page uh, that Christians make a little bit of a big deal out of Easter. All right, JB put a jacket on today. We make a big deal out of Easter. If you didn't need proof, if you didn't have proof before then, now you got proof. Right, Christmas is kind of everybody's favorite holiday, which at least most everybody's. Mine is obviously Thanksgiving. All right, um, but like, like there, there's all this cultural stuff, a lot of baggage that gets thrown on top of the Christmas thing, and so Easter just kind of feels more like ours right? Easter is kind of clearly identified as the Christian holiday. Uh, and, and there's a good bit of cultural stuff that gets thrown on top of Easter too. You got bunnies and eggs and, you know, uh, this unspoken need for everybody to have a nice dapper outfit on, all right? Uh, I, I, I wore a shirt today, all right? Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. All right, so, so there's a good bit of cultural stuff that gets thrown on top of Easter, but like there's way less baggage uh, that gets thrown onto this and it's easier to see the reason for the season if you want to call it that and the reason jb mentioned it a couple times the reason is that king jesus rose victoriously over the grave victoriously from the dead and I don't know everybody's spiritual background in here. I don't know what kind of history you do or don't have with the Bible you do or don't have with the church. But whether your background is extensive and you're fully sold on everything that goes on here or you're kind of on the fence about this stuff or maybe you're even antagonistic to the gospel and somebody else dragged you here this morning and you finally said yes to get them off your back, right? No matter where in that spectrum you happen to land, you got to be honest, today is a really, really, really good day to dig into this stuff, right? It's a good day to stop dancing around the issue and instead lay all the facts on the table and figure out what you do and do not actually believe about the resurrection. And so instead of beating around the bush, here's my thesis for the morning. I'll make it really, really simple. Not only, not only does the resurrection of Jesus have incredible proof but far more importantly, the resurrection of Jesus also has incredible purpose. 
I'll say that again because I really want it to land. Not only does the resurrection of Jesus have incredible proof, but the resurrection of Jesus also has incredible, incredible purpose. I'm convinced, like thoroughly convinced, you can't, you can't budge me at all. I am thoroughly convinced that Jesus is exactly who he said he is, and I am just as convinced that Jesus came and did exactly what he claimed he was coming to do, and because of those two things held in tandem, I am equally convinced that showing my work this morning may just move the needle for you on what you do and do not think about Jesus. change how you see Jesus as well. But um, <laughs> tip you off to something. I don't play fair. I'm going to let God's word speak for me. I'm coming loaded this morning. So uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I don't have to be the smartest guy in the room. I'm going to let God talk. So the letter of 1 Corinthians is a letter written by, in case you're not familiar with it, it's a letter written by uh, a guy named the Apostle Paul. All right, uh, Paul helped to start the church in Corinth. He loved them dearly, probably significantly more than they actually deserved. Uh, the church is young. It's full of really smart, talented people. It's in a fast-moving, vibrant city that prides itself on philosophy and on rhetoric and on being more sexually progressive than their neighbors. Hey, what could possibly go wrong? Right? How in the world could that ever be an issue? And so over the course of what we believe to be probably four-ish, at least four letters back and forth to them, uh, we, we've only got two preserved for us, First and Second Corinthians, but we're certain that there are more out there because uh, First and Second Corinthians both mention other letters. All right? um, and so, uh, but over the course of several letters back and forth to this church, Paul had to address all kinds of issues, uh, issues about how they view themselves and about what spiritual maturity actually looks like, issues about how they ought to deal with and see their sin and about what kinds of things ought to be seen as the most important things in their lives. Over and over again, he's got to deal with these issues. And so in chapter 15 of this first letter, Paul frames all of those issues by arguing that understanding one thing properly, one thing correctly, will set all of the other things in their proper and natural place. You understand this one thing correctly, everything else will work itself out. So what's that one thing? You're in luck because it's the resurrection of Jesus. So look with me at verse 1 of chapter 15. 1 Corinthians 15, starting in verse 1. It says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and in which uh, you stand. Verse 2, And by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. All right, so 14 plus chapters into this letter, all right, he's, he's already put in some work, but 14 plus chapters into this letter, Paul says, now I remind you, brothers, Paul helped to start this church. He preached the gospel to most of the people in his audience. There's probably been some turnover since he's left and gone on to do other things, but he's personally preached the gospel to many of the people reading this letter, and in spite of their nonsense, he seems to have been incredibly patient with them throughout the, the first part of this letter so far. But now there's, a, now there's a little bit of a bite in his tone. He turns a corner here. There's a layer to this that kind of seems like he's talking down to him. Well, why? Why would he go there? Why would he say these things? Well, clearly they're forgetting key pieces of what Jesus has done and why that matters. And so 
Paul's just like, all right, boys, I guess we'll take it from the top. Let's, ro- let's roll this back and do it again. He says, I preached it to you. If you don't remember, you received it. You clung to it as good and right. There, there, was, there was this time in the past when you, not, when you placed your only hope in the gospel. You clung to this gospel. But you didn't just receive it then. It's also in this gospel that you currently stand. The only reason that you're still walking with Jesus today, he says, is because the gospel is still actively doing a work in you. But Paul takes another step. Not just currently stand, it's also by this gospel, he says that you are being saved. This is something that the longer I spend in church leadership, the longer I come to believe that a lot of people very much misunderstand about the gospel. Very much misunderstand. Uh, The gospel is not some secret handshake to just get you in the Jesus club. That's not what the gospel is. You, you get that one settled and now you're in the room and you can w- like deal with and focus on and maybe even celebrate all these other doctrinal things, right? The gospel is the ticket in. No, the gospel is something that has been done to you, that is being done to you, and the Bible promises will one day be done to you. There's a future reality to the gospel that's not quite completed yet, an already but not yet kind of dynamic. So Paul says that, that a proof, a thing to hang your hat on, of a salvation that has happened, is happening, and will happen is seen when people cling to the word that is faithfully preached. Does that mean that I mean, just do the math in your head. Does that mean that every failure in sin or failure in doubt is you teetering on the edge of losing your salvation? No. No, hear me, hear me as clearly as it can be heard this morning. Jesus cannot lose what he is holding on to. Your ineptitude may just be the stuff of legend, but you're still not strong enough to rip that out of his hands. Quit giving yourself so much credit. What it does mean, though, What it does mean is that many of the spiritual games that people often try to play to convince themselves that, you know, they've tipped the scales in their balance and now a holy and perfect God is somehow happy with them. Maybe those things don't have as much merit as we often like to believe they do. See, an incredibly consistent theme coursing throughout the entirety of the Bible is that religious actions void of hearts that love and pursue God are not just worthless, they're actually damnable. Baptism, church attendance, tithing, serving in some ministry. Those are all certainly things that Christians do. Unmistakably so. But not a single one of those things are what makes someone a Christian. They're all external actions that can be done even if the heart behind it is not there. It's entirely possible to learn how to you know, play the religious games even in a way that convinces everybody else around you that you got it nailed down. When Paul writes this letter, 1 Corinthians, he writes it to a bunch of really, really smart, really, really talented, really, really good game players. The ones that are being saved, though, Paul says, they're the ones that will remain clinging to the word that was preached. So a very 
important question to answer is, okay, what's being preached? Paul answers that next in verse 3. He says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sin in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. All right, so so the word proclaimed to them was the sacrificial death, burial, and bodily resurrection promised in the Old Testament and then fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus of Nazareth. That's the word preached. And and I pointed out that that it was promised in the Old Testament because Paul seems to go way out of his way to tell his Corinthian audience that it was promised in the Old Testament. Two times he says, in accordance with the Scriptures, right? And so apparently it's important to Paul. So what does that mean for us? Well, it means that Jesus isn't making any of this up. He's not... not discovering his pathway as he goes here. Uh, The cross is not some haphazard result of a God who was just rolling the dice, waiting to see how things would play out. That's not what it was. No, the cosmic fix for what was broken back in the garden with the fall into sin, it was promised all the way back in the garden. And it rolled along and rolled along and rolled along until this moment when Jesus fulfilled everything that God said he would do. The prophet Isaiah He tells us that the Messiah would be a suffering servant, that he would be despised and rejected by men, that he would be led like a lamb, silent to the slaughter, pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities, right? You know the language. It says, okay, 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 yeah, yeah, gotcha. So it was foretold, we get it, it was foretold that the Messiah would, you know, that he would have to suffer for his people. Okay, got it. No. No, Isaiah says that he would be slaughtered for his people. The cross isn't a byproduct of how things needed to play out. The cross was exactly how things needed to play out. And then immediately after that, Isaiah goes on to tell us that post-slaughter, the Messiah would stand victorious again as he divided the spoils of war and what he had won with his people. But Isaiah isn't the only guy in the Old Testament talking about this stuff long before Jesus walked onto the scene. We can point to a hundred places. I'll just give you one. A guy named Hosea. He tells us that after two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up that we may live before him. By the time you get to Luke's gospel account, um, he tells us that on the morning of the resurrection, you know the story of the road to Emmaus? Maybe come across that in church life before. Jesus shows up, disguises himself to a couple of uh, followers who are now all dejected and sad and sorrowful because have you heard what's happened? Jesus was put to death. What do we do to do? Our whole lives are ruined. Jesus calls them foolish and slow of heart because they failed to remember what the prophets had said about his own death and resurrection, that they were necessary. They're depressed because they don't understand what's going on. They feel like their world has just blown up. And Jesus looks them in the eye and tells them, well, they wouldn't be sad if they had only read their Bibles better. Jesus is allowed to make fun of people like that. He's allowed to call them foolish. He is if they're acting like a fool. See, Jesus is incredibly patient with and gentle with tax collectors, adulterers, uh, women who had been abused. He, and he's immediately forgiving of a man sentenced to death on a cross right next to him. But when it comes to those who had the scriptures and yet still couldn't figure out who he was, he ain't so gentle with them. Not so patient. 
Paul here, he points the Corinthians back to the truth that what Jesus has done was an eternally promised reality. The cross and resurrection of the Son of God has always, and I mean always, been the plan of God to save a people for himself. Period. It's an eternally promised plan, but it's not only an eternally promised plan, because Paul takes the next step in verse 5. Look at it. It says, and, then, and that he, Jesus, appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. So not only, not only does, is the death and resurrection of Jesus a promised reality, but it's also a demonstrably factual reality. What do I mean by that? Well, Paul's not calling anyone here. And I mean anyone at all, at all. To, he's not calling anyone to put their hope and their faith in some kind of urban legend. That's not what's going on here. This isn't some cultural myth that's been handed down to some religious adherents trying to be blindly faithful. It's not some loosely connected allegory that we all need to apply to our own story so we cannot find our own personalized pathways to truth. That's not the game we're playing. No, Jesus really did come out of the ground one morning. Came walking out of the grave and and at the time that Paul was writing this letter, there were some witnesses you could go talk to. They were there. Just go ask. It had been a few years. Some of them had passed away by this point, but most of them were still kicking around. Go, out, go talk to them. They saw something that forever changed the way that they think about the world and live in it. Oh, okay, yeah. Yeah, I got you. Uh, but but just, just so I have the information myself, who were some of those people? Like, give me some names. Well, you got Cephas, Apostle Peter's Aramaic name. Told that Jesus showed up to the rest of the disciples. Some of those stories are recorded for us in the gospel accounts, like the one we just talked about, the road to Emmaus. But Paul also tells us here about Jesus showing up one time to a group of 500 people all at once. Now, as far as we can tell, that story doesn't seem to be recorded for us in the gospel accounts. There's some people who argue that it could have been the episode in Galilee that uh, Matthew 28 that, that Andrew read, uh, uh, almost didn't read, but definitely read. Uh, <laughs> all right, we, we just don't know, though. We, we don't know if that's the account of the 500 people or not. Um, who knows? What we do know What we do know is that it cuts the legs right out from under any attempt to try to argue that, oh, it's just a little small group of Jesus followers locked behind a door. That ain't what's going on at all. The only people who ever try to argue that are folks who have never actually bothered to dig into the evidence. Giant crowds of people were witness to the bodily resurrected Jesus in in Paul's day, and they were more than ready to give you their story. Tell you what happened. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But like, I mean, let's be honest. Like, those, those, they were already Jesus followers. I mean, they, they probably would have been desperate for any kind of good news. They would latch themselves onto anything out there that would have sounded like a win after such a terrible loss. Uh, I won't be convinced until I hear about some non-believers who saw the, the risen Jesus and then were converted. Okay. <laughs> You're in luck because Paul's got you covered there too. Look at verse 7. Then he appeared to James, 
than to all the apostles. All right, so two things we can point out here. Uh, first of all, the apostles are not a like-for-like match to the disciples. There's, some, there's a lot of crossover there, but they're not the exact same group of people. Uh, you got the 12 disciples, Matthias included, who was a replacement for Judas. You know how that story went down. Uh, but there are also a few more apostles added into the mix, guys that weren't followers of Jesus when Jesus was still walking around. One of those guys we're told about explicitly here, James. James, as in the half-brother of Jesus. John 7, 5 tells us explicitly that Jesus' brothers didn't believe him to uh, believe him in his Messiah claims when he was walking around. In fact, the story goes that they tried to get him to stop preaching and make him come home. What are you doing out here? You're embarrassing us. Like, think about it for a second. If you've got a sibling... What would it take for you to believe that your sibling ought to be worshipped as God in the flesh? I got, I got a younger brother. I don't, I don't know if I can give Matthew Woodard enough money to make that happen. There's not a dollar amount. I mean, I'm pretty awesome. I just don't think I could convince him. What would it take for you to finally click over into, yeah, yeah, this, this guy ought to be worshipped. This guy really is the Messiah. For at least two of Jesus' brothers were told explicitly, James and Jude, it took Jesus raising from the dead. That'll do it. That'll do it. They had their doubts before, but after the resurrection, man, they're in. They're ready to go. James goes on to lead the church in Jerusalem. He wrote a book of the Bible with his name on it, James. Our church is walking through that as a letter right now on Sunday mornings. James ends up becoming a martyr who died for the cause of the gospel. He wasn't playing games for a while, and then you know, once life got past to a certain point, he was ready to go do other things. No, James laid his life down because he believed that Jesus is who he said he was. The resurrection did that. James was changed by encountering the risen Jesus. Everything in his life did a 180. The Bible doesn't tell us exactly how that moment went down when Jesus and James interacted. As an older brother myself, I really, really hope that like, Jesus picked on him a little bit. Right? That's what I would have done. I know. Come on, bro, why didn't you believe sooner? Here I am. <laughs> Surprise! <laughs> Listen, whatever that moment did look like James came out the other side of that encounter a very different man an entirely different man oh yeah 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 but James was like family like I know he had his doubts but those roots run deep (laughs) you're gonna have to give me another example of a non-believer Paul saves his best example for last himself verse 8 last of all as the one untimely born He appeared also to me, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and in his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Paul says, listen, I may have come into this game later than everybody else, but I'm real happy to be here. 
Man, I'm real happy to be here. I, I, don't, I don't know how, uh, or if, if you don't know how Paul became a Christian, that story is spelled out for us in a lot of detail uh, in the book of Acts. Um, by his own words, Paul was the great persecutor of the church. He's laying into him. Acts chapter, th- or chapter 8, uh, verse 3, tells us that Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Another place in chapter 8 tells us that murder was on the table. Like Paul wasn't a fan of the Jesus followers. But then something changes in Acts chapter 9. Paul's on his way to Damascus with official papers to go round up some more Christians, drag them off to prison. But then Jesus decides to introduce himself to Paul. The resurrected Jesus shows up on the road and all of a sudden the great persecutor of the church thinks it's a pretty smart idea to go ahead and swap jerseys. All right, Jesus, I'll be on your team now. The Hebrew of Hebrews who had committed his life and career to stomping out the Jesus sect, the guy whose star was on the rise uh, because uh, everybody saw that Paul had the zeal that no one else had. He was the one that was going to take him down. But upon meeting the resurrected Jesus, all of that went right out the window for Paul. Jesus turns Paul from the, the great persecutor of the church into the great apostle to the Gentiles. He was building a name for himself by zealously leading the charge and he set every ounce of that down, changed his allegiance, and willingly faced persecution himself for the cause of the gospel. Not only was James martyred for the cause of Jesus, but so was Paul. Personal advancement didn't do that. The glory of the resurrected Jesus did that. It fundamentally changed who he was and it fundamentally changed what he pursued and it fundamentally changed what he most valued in life including life itself paul was not converted by some cute little religious story that he hoped was actually true but you know i mean even if it it wasn't it still produced some good things in him the resurrected Jesus was literally standing in front of Paul one day, and Paul had to deal with it. He had to do something with that news. He could not be the same man after that encounter. It changed him. The historicity of the resurrection, the, the real people in real time, in real space realities of the bodily resurrection of Jesus, it has incredible proof. All you got to do is look into it. It's there. We could actually spend our time on something much more valuable this morning because there's something even more important than proof. The resurrection of Jesus has incredible purpose. Look at the next verse, verse 12. Paul says this, Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there's no resurrection from the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. Let's call a time out there. All right, so while there may have been a handful of people running around in the Corinthian church who doubted the resurrection or even disbelieved the resurrection, that's not actually the biggest problem that Paul has to write this letter to deal with. All right, that's not the largest group he's got to worry about. Apparently, there was also a group that believed that even if Jesus did do all the things he said he would do, even if he did rise from the dead, well, but like, like, why would I ever want that for myself? Why would I want such a thing? Why? Resurrection sounds like a problem for me. I mean, sure, Jesus did that special thing one time. I guess he's allowed. Why would I ever want such a thing for myself? 
This idea is a direct inheritance from the Greek culture that the church in Corinth was surrounded by living in. Remember I told you that they prided themselves on rhetoric and logic and philosophy. In the Greek world during this time in history, uh, Platonism was just beginning at the very earliest stages to kind of morph into Neoplatonism. Uh, and so for those of you who took a philosophy class like in your sophomore year in college, right, the, think of the, the idea of the abstract was slowly shifting into a dualism that pitted the material against the immaterial. Right? That's what's going on there. And it was becoming quite vogue in the city of Corinth during this time period to believe uh, that the body, like what you did in the body, doesn't affect what happens in, in your spirit. And the highest attainable life was actually to have a complete separation of body and spirit. So the Christian doctrine of a bodily resurrection, something that was inherited from the Jews, it was seen as reprehensible to someone who considered themselves an enlightened Greek. Sounds like a step backwards. I want to be free from my body. But there are several problems with that logic. Namely, God created our bodies. They're His idea. Our our bodies are certainly broken and burdened by sin, for sure, but bodies have existed longer than sin has. They pre-exist sin in the creation account. There's a pre-fall reality to our bodies. And the Bible teaches that there will one day also be a post-fall reality to our bodies. A sinless, glorified reality to our bodies. But that failure of logic doesn't stop there. Because Paul also tells us, or tells the Corinthians, that to deny the hope of a bodily resurrection for ourselves is to ultimately argue that Jesus had no purpose in rising himself. Can't deny that the material body is completely void of goodness, and then we'll just turn around and say, oh, but it was cool that Jesus did it that one time. I mean, I guess he just wants less of a future glorified state than I want for myself. Good for him. See, the Bible paints the picture that our resurrected, glorified bodies will be a final realization of what our bodies were always created to be. That we will finally and forever return to the same reality that God once looked at after creating and said it is good. The resurrection of our material bodies, it's not a step backwards in a biblical worldview. Something to long for. Something that God will rightly and forever receive worship for finally bringing to completion. We can't stop there. There are a couple other reasons that material versus immaterial divide logic is Really, really faulty. Next step comes in verse 14. Paul says, And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. Verse 17, And if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. All right, so in verse 15, Paul says that if Christ has, uh, didn't really actually truthfully rise from the dead, then, then all of us who have been preaching that he did, we're in trouble because we've been misrepresenting Jesus. That's a problem, right? Seems like a bad day. But what's really interesting is that Paul doesn't treat that as the biggest problem. Uh, he kind of sandwiches it between two other, uh, uh, a different problem set in two different ways. All right, uh, both verse 14 and verse 17, he says that the resu- if the resurrection didn't really happen, then your faith, and by faith here he means 
Everything about your entire system of belief and worldview, everything that slapped together makes you you and how you see the world. He says that if Christ hasn't actually been raised, and then your faith is in vain. It's futile. In other words, it's wasted and pointless. Why? Because you're still dead in your sin. This is a massive doctrinal reality that I'm definitely sure most people misunderstand. Definitely sure that most people misunderstand. Like, how how do we actually know, like for real know, that Jesus' death in our place on the cross was effectual to pay the debt of our sin? How do we know? In another place, Romans 4, 25, Paul says that Jesus was delivered for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Meaning, the resurrection is just as much a part of our justification as the death part was. It is by his victory over the punishment for sin, death, that we are declared righteous. So allow me to say that in simpler terms. If Jesus stayed dead, the debt wouldn't be fully paid. It would be only halfway paid. If Jesus stayed dead, there would be, still be division between us and God. If Jesus stayed dead, there is no hope for victory over our sin because even Jesus couldn't beat it. If Jesus didn't really, truly rise from the dead then we are no better off, spiritually speaking, than those who reject Jesus entirely. Pointless. We have placed our hope in one who cannot help us. Our faith is wasted. Our faith is futile. Our faith is in vain. Which Paul carries to the next logical conclusion in verse 18. It says, Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Paul says that those who have died, and in Paul's writings he frequently, typically refers to them as having fallen asleep. He doesn't do that to be cute. He doesn't do that to soften the blow. He does that to emphasize its temporariness. All right? Paul says that if Christ didn't really rise from the dead with the promise of our own future resurrections, then those dead people are not merely fallen asleep. They have perished. They are lost forever. Paul says, you want to play games with the doctrine of the resurrection? Okay, but you're going to lose way more than you think you're going to lose. Without the hope of the resurrection, this world is a much, much darker place. Go have fun out there. Paul says that without the resurrection, we are of, of most, we are of a people most to be pitied. Why, why should we be pitied? I mean, look at all the things that Christians and churches have done over the years. Surely it's made the world a better place. How could we ever be pitied? If the resurrection isn't true, then we will have wasted our 80 years. We will have absolutely wasted our lives. He says that if the bodily resurrection is not a reality, then we will have spent our days chasing after something that has zero future. All the suffering for the sake of Christ, 
Every martyr who has gone to their death for the cause of the gospel. Every even willful choice to to lay down our liberty and lay down our preference and lay down our pleasure uh, in order to love someone else like Jesus first loved us. They will be rightly seen, if the resurrection is not true, they will be rightly seen as incredibly foolish investments in the greatest bait and switch deception that the universe has ever known. So let me say something as clearly as I can. If you're here this morning and you're kind of on the fence about whether or not you should follow Jesus, whether or not you can believe that he's who he says he is and did what he said he would do, allow the Apostle Paul to be heard as clearly as he intends. All right, The resurrection is, is the fulcrum. It is the fulcrum. Jesus is either God in the flesh or he is the greatest con man in all of history. There is no in between at all. Jesus is either God in the flesh or he is the greatest con man in all of history. If Jesus really did rise from the dead, he really is everything he says he is. And if he really did everything he said he would do, then he is owed the entirety of your attention and the entirety of your affection and the entirety of your adoration. But if he is not all of those things, he doesn't, he's not owed a bit of it. Go buy yourself a jet ski or something. Go have some fun. You're wasting your time here. Listen, if all you've got is your 80 years, then you go do you. Have some fun. Go get you some. But if Jesus really did do all those things, Jesus really did did do what he claimed he would do, then your 80 years are nothing. They're absolutely nothing. They're not even a blip on the radar. And you'd be a lot wiser to invest yourself in a kingdom that moth and rust can never destroy and thieves could never break in and steal. The Apostle Paul knows exactly where he stands on that question. Do you? Do you? Here's his answer in verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. So not only does the resurrection have incredible proof, but far more importantly, the resurrection has incredible, incredible purpose. It changes everything. It changes how you see the world. It changes what you value. It changes what you pursue. It changes how you invest yourself and the resources God places in your care. Either Jesus is worth everything or Jesus is worth absolutely nothing. So what do we do with this? Right? I'm biased. I'll admit that. I kind of feel like my thesis has been proved out. What do we do with this? If you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus yet, there's one clear response. There's only one clear response. You meet Jesus. Take a cue from guys like Cephas and James and Paul this morning. The resurrection of Jesus changes who you are. It changes everything you chase after. It changes everything you devote your life to. The Bible teaches that because of our sin, that all people by default are separated relationally from God. That we are owed the just and righteous punishment for that sin. Uh, JB talked about it earlier. The wages of sin, the thing properly earned for our sin is death. 
The Bible also teaches that God is rich in mercy. And that He loves us with a great love. That even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, God makes us alive through Christ by His grace. He sent His Son to rescue those who didn't deserve rescue. Jesus put on flesh and dwelt among us. He lived the sinless life that I can't live and you can't live and all of our best efforts combined can't live. And he died on the cross as a substitute to make full and final payment for your sin, what we celebrated on Friday. But he was also raised again from the dead. He did not merely die. That would only be half of the solution. We learned this morning that he was also raised to life again. He was raised as a vindication of his perfect righteousness. And and we have proof that the payment is complete. The check has been cashed. And he was also raised as a down payment. The first fruits, Paul tells us, of our own future resurrection. And because of that future resurrection, man, everything changes. Because he stands victoriously over the grave, King Jesus now calls on us to respond to him in repentance and faith, to turn away from your sin and to turn to him as Savior and Lord. Listen, if he's not who he says he is, you shouldn't care. If he's who he says he is, oh, you better care. To turn away from your sin and to turn to him as Savior and Lord. And you can do that this morning. You can respond to Jesus by becoming a follower of Jesus. Man, I'd love to be helpful to you. God... God doesn't need me to call you to himself. He wants to give you himself. He he doesn't need some go-between. He is the go-between. We can talk. I'd love to be helpful to you. Let's talk. After we're done here, pull me to the side, whatever. But what if you're here this morning and you're already a follower of Jesus? How can can we respond today? Uh, This choice seems pretty obvious to me, too. Just like the, Christ, the non-Christian has one clear response, I think today the Christian has one clear response. I told you earlier that Christians make a really, really big deal out of Easter. There's a really, really good reason for that. What we're celebrating in a special way this morning is, is entirely worthy of all the pomp and circumstance we can throw at it. We're going big. To the right response to the news that the Son of God lived and died, but not only lived and died, He also rose again. It ought to pull out of us everything we have and the biggest celebration that we're capable of throwing. And in God's goodness to us, He's also given us this recurring date on the calendar that we can kind of lean into this in a special way. And so we're going to lean into that today. Normally, our response time is a little more somber, a little more introspective. That doesn't fit today. Today's a day to celebrate. So I'm going to pray, and we're going to sing some more. For the Lord is risen. Good church, let's go. Father, thank you for sending your son. Thank you for being the kind of God who is not content to sit far away and be upset that we haven't figured it out yet. You came to rescue. You came to save That saving, yes, involves a sinless life. That saving, yes, involves a sacrificial death. And that saving, yes, involves a glorious, victorious resurrection over the dead. And we long for the day when you will complete that in us. God, we love you. Thank you for all of these things. For those in here who don't know you yet, make yourself known in this moment. Open eyes to see and ears to hear. Convince some people this morning that you actually are everything you claim to be. 
forever change them by that. Help us celebrate well today. Our our effort at celebration is always smaller than you deserve, but you seem to delight in us giving you what we got, and so that's what we'll do today. For the glory of your name. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.